Careful. Right, so let's, let's just start. Be careful. Good boy. Right, let's just start. We're going to start with a prayer. And I want to talk about Jesus as our Passover. Now, I'm getting over an awful cold, so you have to forgive my... Uh, needing to drink lots of coke and all that. Um, <coughs> so, we're going to start with a prayer. But the theme we're going to be following through is the Lord Jesus as our Passover. And that the equivalent of the Passover feast under the New Covenant is this breaking of bread that we're doing, taking the bread and the juice in memory of the Lord's death and resurrection. So let's, uh, let's start off with uh, the prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you to thank you for life, to thank you for this place, to thank you that we are here. But above all, to thank you for the Lord Jesus. To thank you for your reaching out into our rather dumb, obscure lives to bring us out of the darkness of Egypt, to take us on this journey that will lead us to everlasting life. And we really pray that you will bless each of us in this journey and that you will bless each of us to have meetings with people whom we can help to you. We pray, Father, also for those suffering that terrible earthquake in Turkey and Syria, that you'll be with them. We pray that this week we might have meetings with people and we can help to you and to your people. We pray, Father, that you open our eyes to your word, that it might lift us, and that we might connect more deeply with you this day. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Christ, our Passover, Paul says, is sacrificed for us. So, what was the Passover? What was the Passover? The Passover was when Israel were in Egypt and they were living this dumb life in slavery. They wanted to get out. And God said, right, there's going to be one last plague. I'm going to kill all the firstborn in Egypt. But you can avoid that if you take an unblemished lamb out of the flock, kill it, but don't break a bone of it, and paint its blood on your doorposts and the lintel, and then when the destroying angel passes over, it won't touch you. And you are to eat the lamb with your clothes girded, your belts on, shoes on your feet, ready to go at any moment. And you are to search your house for yeast. You're not allowed to have any yeast leaven in your house. And so that's what happened. And then God said, and I want you to remember this every year. On the 14th day of the first month, I want you to do this. All for your generations. Well, that was the old covenant. But now we're in Christ under the new covenant. And all this stuff comes true for us. And our equivalent of it is in the breaking of bread. Where we remember the price that was paid for our salvation out of this world. Right? The Lamb represents the Lord Jesus. Unblemished. Nothing wrong with him. But a Lamb taken out of the flock. That is, he was in the flock of humanity. He was our representative, but was an unblemished one. Not a bone broken. You remember when the Lord was on the cross, 
the soldiers came by and said, let's, uh, let's break the legs of these, these people on the cross so that they can't possibly climb down and escape. But they came to the Lord Jesus and said, no, he's so obviously dead. They didn't break a bone to fulfill what was said about the Passover lamb that the bone of him should be broken. They must search their house for yeast. And Paul says, let a man examine himself, and so let him take of that bread and drink of that cup. That's the equivalent. What is yeast? Paul says, let us keep the feast, not with the yeast of bitterness and nastiness. <clears throat> so yeast is like sin. And the thing is with yeast that it spreads, it influences. Like if you've got flour, you put yeast in the flour and the flour will rise up and turn into something much bigger. That is a loaf of bread. Okay? So yeast is like sin that spreads. And if you allow yourself a little bit of sin, it expands, doesn't it? Ask anyone who's got an addiction. Oh yeah, just, uh, just get stoned once a week. When it turns once a week, it turns into every day, right? That's the thing. So, they were to eat it with their clothes girded, belts on, ready to go. And Jesus alludes to that when he says, you should be living your lives with your, with your belts on and your clothes girded. That is, you live your whole life in the intensity of Passover night, that I'm ready to go. I've got nothing here. I want to get out of here. So when Jesus comes back, I'm ready to go straight away. <coughs> when he comes back, sure, I want to go. I want to stay here. Remember Lot's wife, the story of Lot's wife? She looked back at Sodom, maybe at her new kitchen or whatever she had. Oh, I don't really want to leave. The more you've got, the harder it is to leave. When the Lord comes, sure, I want to go. I want to stay here. Um, absolutely. So, that's the basis for this. And I want to look at one chapter, one of the chapters that talks about the Passover because it's, it gives another nuance to it. And it's the one in Numbers 9. Moses spoke to the children of Israel they should keep the Passover, and they kept the Passover in the first month on the 14th day of the month. Verse 6, but there were some men who were unclean because of the dead body of a man. They touched a dead body, a corpse. So they couldn't keep the Passover on that day. <coughs> well, the law was, God's law, that you couldn't keep the Passover if you were unclean. And you became unclean, for example, by touching a dead body. And God had said that clearly. If you're unclean, you can't eat the Passover. And some people worry about doing the breaking of bread. Or, am I worthy? Can I take the bread and wine, bread and juice, because I'm, I'm a sinner? We're all sinners. So this is interesting. And they were unclean. They touched the dead body of a man. I imagine it was a relative who had died whom they had buried. They came before Moses and Aaron and they said, we are unclean because we touched the dead body of a man. Why? Why can't we eat the possum? You could say their attitude wasn't great. You know, the law was if you're unclean you can't eat the Passover. Well, if you want to eat the Passover, then don't touch a dead body. You touched a dead body. You chose to. Well, there you are, you can't keep the Passover. The legalist, the person who just thinks in terms of law, would have said, if he were Moses, well, what are you come to me for? You know the law, 
If you touch a dead body, you're unclean, you can't eat the Passover. You, you come to me and say, yeah, no, we, I'm not cleaning. We touched a... We touched my mum died, I kissed her goodbye. No, no, no. That was under the law. That was under the law of Moses. So, so these guys, I did the same as well. So you'll be in the same boat. I did the same one. So, um, they come and they say we're unclean, but we are. Why? Why can't? So what does Moses say? He says, "Wait, that I may hear what Yahweh will command concerning you." He doesn't say, "Well, sorry, guys, but the law says you can't." He knows God well enough. To know that God is able to rethink. God is sensitive and God wants to have a relationship with you. So God replies, If any man of you of your generations is unclean by reason of a dead body, or is on a journey far away, he shall still keep the Passover to Yahweh the second month on the 14th day. They shall keep it. So you could say, well, if you go away on a journey... When you know this is the first month, 14th day of the month, well, if you want to keep the Passover, don't go on a journey. That's how you could reason. But God says, okay, I'll amend my law. So that if you are away on a journey, or you touch a dead body, it's okay. You can still keep the Passover. But, second month. And the picture you get there is of a God who wants to reach out to you, who, as it were, is proactive in the relationship, that this is a God who, as it were, comes over the counter to meet you. So the idea that God is sort of an old man up in the sky made of concrete, who, um, you know, says, look, guys, I gave you my son, I gave you the Bible, I called you to know me, uh, it's over to you now. This is not right. God is proactive in the relationship. I want you. Okay, so you've gone away on a journey instead of keeping the Passover. Okay, that's not great, but I, I tell you what, you can do it the next month. You've touched a dead body purposefully, consciously. Well, you therefore can't keep the Passover. Oh, okay, you did that. I still want you. I still want to have the relationship with you by all means. This doesn't mean that we can shrug and say, well, I can do what I want then. God's not serious. No, God is serious. But my point is that he is uh, proactively wanting to, by all means, have a relationship with you. People say, I can't be with me because, you know what, I'm a sinner, I'm not a clean person. That's all of us. Who here is clean? Who here is, you know, pious and... <laughs> Not you, mate. Not me, mate. Anyone else? Not me, mate. Not, uh, right. <laughs> so we're all in the same boat, we're all in aren't the same we? Boat, yeah. But God wants the relationship. It is love. This is what love does. You know? Bloke fancies a girl and he invites her out. Oh, I can't come tonight because um, uh, it's my mum's birthday. He doesn't say, oh, so you can't come tonight. Okay, see ya. He says, okay, what about tomorrow? And, uh, well, tomorrow comes, oh, you know what, I sprained my ankle. So what does he say? Oh, yeah, tough. No, he's going to say, well, what about, what about tomorrow night? That's what love does. Love is proactive. Love wants the relationship, whatever. And so that is how God is with us. That's why I keep begging people, get baptized into Jesus. 
Come back to our place Sunday afternoons, big bathtub, just commit yourself to Jesus, not to any denomination, church, blah, blah. Just into Him. It's something you'll never regret. Never regret this. Many of you here have done it. And no one regrets it. So, he says, you've got to uh, do this, verse 12, and don't break a bone of it. Well, as I say, when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, not a bone of him was broken. Physically. So, you think to yourself, how could that have happened? What was crucifixion? Crucifixion was a hanging of the body on a tree trunk. <clears throat> so the whole weight of the human the, the body was held on nails that were driven through the hand and through the feet. And if you just touch your own hand and you think, how could you put a nail through my hand without breaking a bone. And the archaeologists have uncovered these nails they used, the big iron nails. That to be big, because the whole weight of the human body was held on the nails. Well, in Greek and in Hebrew, um, and in Russian actually, the word for a hand and arm are the same. You just hold your own hand. There's no way you can drive a big, thick, six-inch nail through your hand, through your palm, without breaking a bone. Not a bone of it was broken. So, it would have gone through here. This is called the Desto Gap. They should really get Cindy to lecture about this. She's the medic around here, not me. But this thing called the Desto Gap. And you've got your two big, big bones here, right? And there's a hollow inside here that is full of nerves that signal pain so to handle the weight of the body on the nail it wouldn't have gone through the palm it would have ripped and it would smashed bones anyway it would have had to go right through there right through and they're made of iron these nails right through where you've got all your nerve centre the pain would have been off the record. Now, <clears throat> also, if you were to try to do this in a laboratory setting, you'd have to measure pretty carefully to the millimeter, not the centimeter, to the millimeter, to make sure that nail went through there without breaking any bone. You can do it, but you have to be very precise to get it so not a bone breaks. Those soldiers who were crucifying the Lord were rough guys. They'd done this many times. Get a nail, bang, whack, whack, whack. Get the next one up, right, whack, whack. They weren't measuring by the millimetre to make sure they didn't fracture or break a bone. But God overruled that because the Bible says, not a bone of him shall be broken because he was the Passover lamb. Right? So, not a bone was broken. So, what, what appeared to be random cruelty, random blokes just whack, whack the nail through, that apparent random roughness was all controlled by God. So, not a, bro a bone was broken of the Lord. So, 
You might think that life is full of random roughness to you. On one hand it is, but it's not random. That random roughness between the commas is used by God. And God's hand is in that. You may think, oh, life is just awful. Pain, nastiness. Yeah. But God is controlling that in an amazing way. And so you then scratch your head, if you're like me, and you sort of think things through. Wait a minute. We come to the breaking of bread. And Jesus took bread and he broke it, as the bread is broken here. And he said, this represents my body. How come? We break the bread and we take a little piece of this bread that's been broken. But the, his body wasn't broken, the bones weren't broken. So what's this meaning? Why, why did he ask us to do this? He takes bread, he breaks it and said, this represents my body. But not a bone was broken. Isn't that a contradiction? No. It's not a contradiction. What it means is that, sure, physically, the physical body was not broken. Not a bone of him was broken. But, he was broken as a person. And that, you know, mentally broken. That is why... The broken-hearted can relate to him. He was the ultimately broken person for us. And so when we break the bread and take it, we represent not the physical breakup of his physical body, because not a bone is broken, but how he was a, a man broken for us. And that's why, naturally, the broken-hearted, and he said, I came to heal the broken-hearted. The broken-hearted. Him. He was the classically broken man. So, <clears throat> the man who is clean and is not on a journey, oh sorry, verse 12, yeah, according to all the law of the Passover, they shall keep it. This is on the second month on the 14th day. I say, yeah, you can do it, but a month later. And you've got to do it properly. Well, when you look at the laws about how to keep the Passover, they were what I would call collective. For example, each household, each family, had to take a lamb. And the whole family had to search for the yeast or the leaven in the house. The whole family had to stay inside the house and eat it together. Well, how could one guy who happened to be out on a journey... How could one guy uh, manage to do this? Well, he couldn't really keep it fully and properly. But that's okay. So you get it. God is not a legalist. God is not saying, oh, this is the law, guys, you've got to stick to it, etc., etc. Not at all. He is saying, I will, by all means, come to meet you. I will come as far as I can to you. I want you to keep it on the second month, 43rd month, but you're not going to be able to do it perfectly. That's okay. I want you. And so it turns out, doesn't it, that he is so different to how religion does it. 
in my commentary on Numbers 9, you'll, you'll see I quote there from the laws of the Hittites, the laws that were given to their priests. And the priests were told, you've got to keep such and such a ritual exactly on the day that it was given. Archaeologists have discovered all this. And basically, don't take any nonsense from the worshippers. If they say, oh, I wasn't away on a journey, or oh, I had to go to my father's funeral. Don't take any nonsense from them. They've got to keep it on that day or else. And it stands in such contrast to God. He says, if you're on a journey, if you touch a dead body, your dad's funeral or whatever, that's all right. That's okay. I'll find a way. You see? God wants to find a way. Right. And then he goes on in Numbers 9 to talk about how they were led by the cloud. The cloud of fire in the daytime, sorry, the cloud of fire by night, and the cloud in the, sorry, the pillar of fire by night, and the cloud, the pillar of cloud in the daytime. So, just to uh, get the context, there they were in Egypt, like we were in the world, Egypt representing the world. We wanted out. We wanted out, and so God led us out. You go through baptism, which is like they went through the Red Sea, and you come out the other side, not immediately in the Promised Land, but in the wilderness. And you walk through the wilderness, eating the manna, which is like God's word, the Bible, and then you come to the promised land. Right, but they were led through that wilderness. That's what we're interested in. Let's say you're baptized. Right, so I'm now in the wilderness. How am I going to get through the desert, through this desert, Croydon or wherever we live? Well, they were led. They were led by the fire by night, and the cloud in the daytime. And wherever that went, they went. And to start with, you see how thoughtful God is, because in the desert, it's very cold at night, <coughs> and terribly hot in the daytime. There was a cloud in the daytime to keep the sun off them. It's like God was carrying an umbrella over them as they went through at night, it's freezing cold, and they've got a pillar of fire to keep them warm. So, yeah, there you go. Absolutely. All you need. And other things, you know, in Deuteronomy, it says that their feet never swelled. The shoes they wore that night when they left Egypt lasted them 40 years until they came to the land of Canaan. So, the idea is that God will provide your basic necessities. Now, everyone wants more than basic necessity. We want a phone, we want, you know, we want this, we want that. Whatever. But God's promise that he will provide us with that basic stuff to get us through the wilderness, to get us to God's kingdom. So, verse 18, At the commandment of Yahweh, the children of Israel traveled, and at the commandment of Yahweh, they encamped. As long as the cloud remained in the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Sometimes the cloud was a few days on the tabernacle. Then, according to the commandment of Yahweh, they remained in camp. And according to the commandment of Yahweh, they travelled. Sometimes the cloud was from evening till morning. The cloud was taken up in the morning, they travelled. 
by day or by night, whenever the cloud was taken up, they travelled. Whether it was two days or a month or a year, they remained in camp and didn't travel. Now, that would have been totally inconvenient. Very inconvenient. Because they were like hundreds of thousands of Israelites. And by the time you camp, you set up your encampment, no way. You're just here for two days. Oh no, we've got to move on. I don't want to move on. I want to stay settled here. But they were continually being moved on. They had no idea how long they were going to stay in any one place. It could be two days or it could be a year. And that is the picture of our lives. That we are continually moved on. I was talking to a guy in Thornton Heath who is nearly 80 years old and he has lived in the same house since he was two years old. He's lived in a house in Thornton Heath for what? 78 years. The house pretty much he was born in. You may say, well, he hasn't travelled very far. Maybe he hasn't physically, but he's travelled a huge way spiritually. And so it is with all of us that we are on this journey, but we are led. And he keeps stressing, verse 23, at the commandment of Yahweh they encountered, the commandment of Yahweh they took up their journey, at the word of God. So this is why I keep saying, read the Bible for yourself. Because, as you read, you are directed. And you're directed also by the cloud in front of you. There was an angel in that cloud. Not an angel, I don't think it was Jesus, but it represented Jesus. So we are guided by God's word. We're guided by the cloud, which was the cloud of glory. The question is, what would glorify God? Would it glorify God to spend my bit of money on this or to do that? Would it glorify God to spend my evening watching that? I'll spend my evening doing that for God. That's a big concept. And what would Jesus do? That is the final. That's the final question. But we are, you don't know, you may be two days or you may be a year. And when you look back at your life, you, you can see that. I was in with these people only for two days, then I saw through them. I was with these guys for years, then I saw through them and I moved on. All this is of God, and it is to move towards salvation. So their journey through the desert was from God, absolutely. And he was so caring for them. I said it a few weeks ago that when Israel came to the promised land, they don't actually want to go in there. They sent out spies who came back and said, oh no, the people are too aggressive. We're their giants, we can't cope with them. And so God said to them, right, you don't want to be in my kingdom, so you will die in the wilderness. For 38 years they wandered until they died. But while they were wandering in the wilderness, God was so caring for them. He carried, as it were, an umbrella over them so they didn't get, get too much heat in the daytime. He kept them warm at night. These people who were led through the wilderness round and round, one of the people who've been condemned by God. But he is so caring for them. 
He gives them food and water every day. He makes sure that their clothes don't wear out. Now, the measure of a man, it seems to me, is shown by how he deals with his enemies. For example, the measure of a boxer is shown by how he treats his opponent when he wins. So there's the boxer, he's knocked out, the other boxer, the other boxer's lying there in the dust. I won. But the measure of the man is shown by how he treats the guy he knocked out. The measure of a soldier is in how he treats his enemy when he has captured him or when he has wounded him. That is the measure of a man. If you spit at him, if you abuse him, you didn't win. And so it is with God. The measure of God, I think, is shown here very much by how he deals with the Israel who rejected him, who didn't want his kingdom. Okay, you have to die in the wilderness, you're the condemned generation, but I'll look after you. I'll keep you warm at night. I, uh, I'll make sure the sun's not too hot for you in the daytime. This is talking about the measure of a man. You see there that God is love. Absolutely. Last bit. Um, Moses' father-in-law lived in the desert. And Moses says to him, we're journeying through this desert. Come with us and we'll treat you well. But he says, no, I, I won't go. I want to go back to my own land and my own relatives. Moses says, please, please, you know how we are to encamp in the wilderness. And you can be to us instead of eyes. What he means is, I want you to come with us to guide us. But they already had the angel in the pillar of fire and cloud to guide them. The Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, this box covered in gold where the, uh, over which the presence of God and the cloud was, went before the three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. So they had an angel, the eyes of the Lord. They had guidance. But Moses wants this local guy, who happened to be his father-in-law, to be their guide. And it's like us. God wants to guide us through this desert journey. But unfortunately, we want to have some physical, human, secular, wise guy to lead us. We want a guru. They want somebody to uh, lead them through. Whereas I'm afraid what we're asked to do is total surrender. That God will guide me because he loves me. He wants me to be safe. And I totally surrender to him. I totally surrender. Absolutely surrender to him. And I will go his way. And now, uh, you know, this is clearly wrong of Moses. I know Moses was a great guy. He was mistaken at this. And I think this is God's point. That he wanted a human guide through the desert when he already had this pillar of fire and cloud to guide him and lead him. The Ark of the Lord is a symbol of Jesus. <coughs> and he went before them three days' journey. So they knew where they were going. Jesus died for three days and then resurrected. He went in front of us. So he becomes our pattern. And this is the whole thing, that man is not alone, that we are not rudderless, we are not without direction. 
He is in front of us. And what does that mean? Well, I think it means that all your life decisions are guided by this question. What would Jesus do? And we're guided also by the Holy Spirit working in our lives, guiding us towards salvation. God says to Israel, I only want to do you good at your latter end. That all the stuff we go through is to guide us to salvation through the desert to salvation. So, I beg those of you who have not been baptised yet, as adults, to be baptised. Just come and talk to me about it, Spino, Cindy, whoever, I don't want to tell you anyone. Come and talk to us. Come back to our place, just do the baptism, just into Jesus, only into Jesus. And then you start this journey. You've left Egypt, and then you've got this presence of God guiding you. Life is no longer random. Life is no longer a bet on a race or a day of the races. Then you're guided. And you know that the, the direction of your life, you have a direction of your, in your life. And that you will come finally to the promised land. God wants to give it to you. And Jesus has gone ahead of you. Three days. He died and resurrected. So, we're going to take the, the bread, the broken bread, and the cup. Well, girls, you'd like to pass the, uh, pass the cup around? Um, this represents the body of Jesus, the person of Jesus, I would say, that was broken for us. When I say his physical body wasn't broken, but he was broken as a person. That he might connect with us. Every one of us here is broken. Every one is broken. And the cup represents his life, his blood. Just as they painted the blood of the Passover lamb over their house, so our equivalent is that we also identify ourselves with the symbol of the blood of Jesus. Right, let's give thanks to the bread. Um, don't know, Kevin, do you want to give thanks to the bread? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for your love and mercy towards us. Father, as we partake of the bread and communion of Jesus Christ, we pray bless the bread. Bless each and every one of us as we partake, remembering your suffering in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, let's give thanks for the cup. As Piros, would you like to thank, thank God for the cup? Father, we give you thanks. He was betrayed, he said, to drink the wine in remembrance of him. Father, make it achieve what you want it to do in our bodies and we give you thanks for you truly are remarkable, full of love and compassion and understanding. I pray if there's any here that don't know the Lord, that you will reveal yourself to them. Right, well, um, I know a few, quite a few people have come in late, so I hope we're going to have enough food, but I'm not sure we will. But um, anyway, we shall do our level best. Um, <clears throat> the problem is the pub can't um, whistle up meals at the last minute. We have to give them uh, notice. I'm afraid when folks come late, I'm, it's, it's a little bit difficult. But uh, we do our very best. Um, <clears throat> right, let's give thanks for the food.
And it's always lovely to see a bar absolutely full of suddenly espouted people. Um, it's, it's wonderful. Um, right, let's give thanks to the food. I wonder, Sean, could you give thanks to the food? Yeah. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the food that is brought to us today. Lord, we thank you as we go through this week. In your name, prayer blessing on everybody in your holy house. Let your heart shine through us, Lord. Anybody that needs to come to you, Lord, you just guide them, Lord. You bring them to us, Lord. We are doing your good work, Lord. As the pastor said today, seeming contradictions may be the answer. But we know, Lord, that you are pure. Your heart is pure, Lord. You are the Almighty Father, and we praise you every day. All the people in your holy house will say, Amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen.